All right, so, yeah, this is lesson number 48, our uh, series in the book of Romans. Uh, grace and peace to you, and if there is a uh, more important message we need to hear, it's grace and peace right now, uh, because we certainly need all the grace from God we can get, and certainly all the peace. But um, with so much going on, uh, sometimes people say, well, why are, we, why are we studying this? You know, we're, we're already believers. Why are we studying this? Uh, because Paul wrote it to us, all right? Just uh, number one, because God wanted us to have it, and because knowing more about who we are and what we have brings stability no matter what circumstance we're going through. And sometimes, because we need to get our mind off of what's going on in the natural world and live more in the spirit realm and be in touch with what God has purposed and planned for us and for all of our life. So we started in um, Romans chapter 8, a couple lessons back, no condemnation, and then in our last session we talked about freedom that is ours, and so this is uh, this is where Paul has now made the transition into the solution to the frustration he's been talking about for the last five chapters. Uh, since chapter two, he's been going over and over the different issues that are uh, affecting believers, especially in realm of their salvation and security of their salvation, the the reality of their salvation. Uh, how are we saved? What do we do with, with all these things? And certainly, as the people in Rome had these questions, so also do believers throughout the world today. Um, it's probably a very small percentage of the body of Christ that have a, a good, solid understanding of what we call New Testament truth. Uh, because no, nobody really teaches it. Uh, the way that God intended us to teach it. We teach subjects, we teach ideas, we teach things, um, but we need to teach the Bible. And no matter where we pick it up, we can pick it up in the Gospels, we can pick it up in the Epistles, we can pick it up in the Old Testament, uh, later on letters of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, whatever, as long as we're teaching from God's Word, we're going to be bringing stability into our life because we can't know all of it. We can't know enough of it. And so, as the Apostle Paul was writing his letters to Christians throughout uh, the Roman Empire, as he was traveling in the different churches that he had helped establish, uh, he, was, he was scattered in his messages. He's all over the place with what believers needed to know and needed to understand. And, yeah, it was wonderful when finally hundreds of years later, they collected all of those books and put them together in what we know of the Bible. But Paul was just helping believers to understand. And we find Peter doing the same thing, and John the same way, and James writing to the church to bring stability and understanding. So we need the Word of God. Yes, much of what Paul is saying we, we've got, and even if we don't know it, we have it. And believers all over have the security that we're going to be talking about. They may not know it, but they have it, and it's there. And the reality is that the more we know, the more we can be settled 
in peace in our life and the more we can help other people understand. So when he gets to Romans chapter 8, as he's been talking about this frustration through chapter 7 with trying to live by the law, even as a believer, trying to live by the law was something you just can't do. It will only frustrate you and only lead you to discouragement and wondering whether you've got anything or any, any of it ever works. But chapter 8, verse 1, turns the corner. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the, the words therefore and now um, are, are repetitive in some ways, but also emphatic. Stop wondering about this. There is no condemnation. And now he's going to help us to understand why. And he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you're in Christ Jesus, then the law of the Spirit of life rules you. You might not have it in your head, but it's ruling you inwardly. There's life on the inside of you. And if you don't know that, then you need to learn it. But also this spirit of life that is inside of us helps us to realize, I'm not under the law of sin and death. I was. And then the more I try to, to live by the law, the more I just begin emphasizing sin and death, sin and death, sin and death. It's like, but I'm alive. But all I'm talking about is sin and death, sin and death. Why? Because that's what the law ministers, sin and death. And so if you're, cons you're concentrating on the law, then that's where you're going to be locked in. So what God wants us to understand, and Paul then is given this, this message to write, is that we've been set free and we're not under this condemnation anymore. If you live by the law of sin and death, you will be. Though you don't need to be, because Christ's not condemning you. God's not condemning you. The Word is not condemning you. The Spirit's not condemning you. Who's condemning you? You are. You are, because you're picking up the law. And so you're self-condemning, and uh, you need to move beyond that. So, he moves now into how this has come to us. And so verse 3 starts off with the word for. For. The issue of verses 1 and 2 is clarified in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So this is, is Paul's declaration of what God is doing for us, what he has done for us and what he wants us to realize. Now, I put a number of verses down here because as I come to this verse, this is, this is one of those classic verses for me that just grabs your attention. 
and it stands out. And it stands out mostly because of that opening phrase, for God has done what the law could not do. It's like, what? But didn't God write the law? How could he do what the law couldn't do? Couldn't the law do what God could do? No, the law could not do. So this, to me, is one of these classic verses. I, I put several others down here, verses that are so powerful and so um, beautiful in many ways, uh, significant, almost startling sometimes to some believers who haven't familiarized themselves with these truths. But most everyone knows John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son who served believes, should not perish but have everlasting life. But don't forget verse 17. For God did not send his son of the world to condemn the world. He didn't send his son to condemn the world. But what? But in order that the world through him might be saved. So this is a declaration from God of his ultimate desire for mankind and then of course acts chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 this jesus and i love that i've told you that before just read through acts chapters 2 through 10 and find out how many times that phrase this jesus this jesus is this if this not just anybody this Jesus, the one that you rejected, the one that you hated, the one that you put on the cross, the one that you don't want anything to do with, the one that you'd like to ignore, this Jesus. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. That is not a message the world wants to hear right now. But it's the message they need to hear. There is salvation in no other name. And so there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must, you must be saved. Now sometimes we, we see it translated as you might be saved, but it's actually it's you must be saved. Because there can be no other way that if you're going to be saved, you must be saved through Jesus Christ. And then Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifest, manifest apart from the law. A righteousness apart from the law. Everybody wants to think about righteousness, sanctification, whatever they want to think about, holiness, however they want to say it, and they want to think immediately about the law. Do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. They want to put it down. No, there is a righteousness that is apart from the law, that has nothing to do with, does not issue from the law, and does not get its power or significance through the law. There is a righteousness that has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this righteousness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all, what? Who believe. For all who believe. And so this issue of faith and belief is essential. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Now, these 
startling, significant, beautiful passages. But God being rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated with us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So these, these you make your own list. <laughs> Find your own verses. Maybe you've got them listed in the front of your Bible or someplace or highlighted. A place where you've got these, these verses that seem so significant. And they stand out. Well, that's what I see here in verse 3 of Romans. Actually, verses 3 and 4. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. To me, one of the most profound of all the statements, because this declares the purpose, the process, and the result of God dealing with the law. What is God going to do with the law as a means of us obtaining righteousness? Now, in the Old Testament, if you want to be righteous, you're going to have to follow the law. You're going to have to do this in order to be declared righteous. But were you righteous? If you followed the law, were you righteous? No, it couldn't produce righteousness. You could hold yourself to it and say, I'm doing righteous things. But you couldn't be made righteous by it. There wasn't anything you could do. Now, I put a translation down here I got out of one of my commentaries uh, by Hughes. And he's, his translation is kind of a, a loose paraphrase that he brings out for what the law was powerless to do. In that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of a sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. So I liked his, his direct translation, um, a little bit freer than our ESV or maybe your NIV. But his statement is, again, that, that wonderful thing. God did what the law could not. And over and over again, we, we find people emphasizing the law. That's where Paul was. It, you know, however long that period of time was that Romans chapter 7 um, refers to, when Paul was living in this frustration, trying to live by the law, trying to live by the way that he'd been taught all of his life, he'd, he'd adhered to the law, he'd followed the law, he'd done all the things that the law required, and now that he got saved, he's still trying to do the law. But it wasn't helping, it didn't do anything, and how many of us have found frustration in the same way? The more you try to do, the less secure you feel the more frustrated you feel. Now, do not think I'm saying, because we'll pick this up as we continue through this chapter, that I'm saying that, well, then, you know, we don't have to live by the do not murder, and we don't have to live by the don't commit adultery, and we don't have to live by, oh, yeah, we do. It's just you're not doing it by the law. 
It's a different process. And if you follow after the spirit, guess what? You won't commit murder. You won't be in adultery. You won't lie. You won't cheat. You won't bear false witness, right? If you're following after the spirit. So there's, it's a different way. The law said don't. The spirit says live this way. And the spirit gives us the power and the ability to live in a different way. I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, legislation is not equipped to overcome bad behavior. You can write all the laws you want. You can write them in big letters. You can chisel them in stone, right? You can read them right to somebody's face. And law does not change behavior. How many of you have children? Yeah, all right. So law does not change behavior. Threat might have some effect, but doesn't change the inward part. Oh, I'm doing what you say, but I'm not liking it, right? So I'll sit down, but I'm standing up on the inside, yeah. So this, you know, that, the whole thing, because law can't legislate. And that doesn't mean that the law is wrong. Thank God we have laws, right? We're supposed to be, I put that in parenthesis, supposed to be a nation of laws. <laughs> we are to be, you know, follow after the law. Linda, would you pick up in my notebook over there? There's a little pink slip. Would you pull that out for me? Yeah. There's the next one. Yes, this is a... This is a, I didn't mean to be breaking the law. How many have heard that, you know, the stories about rural southern town speed traps? Found one. And I wasn't really even looking for it. So, um. I could tell the officer all I wanted. I didn't mean to be. And at in that point, I got to tell you, I, I did not know. Speed limit had changed to 45 miles an hour. I was going 63. I didn't even bring that up. Why? There's no purpose. Sorry, guilty. Nothing's going to happen because the law, 45 miles an hour, did not change my behavior. Not then. Afterwards, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was watching. I realized maybe, maybe I was just out to lunch somewhere. I just realized that on my GPS, there's a little thing down at the bottom. Tells you exactly what the speed limit is. And as soon as you pass a speed line, it, it shows you the next speed limit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's right there. But, well, I don't know. It's just about everywhere we went. But, and mine doesn't beat me when I'm going too fast. That's a good thing. But uh, anyway, not that I go fast a lot. All right, okay, not, okay. You just move on from there. But the point is, legislation doesn't change anything. We got all kinds of laws, but you can't 
decriminalize society by laws. You can write them and you can punish criminal activity. And so the law could not change us. No matter how strongly God worded it, do this and you will die. Well, let me see how far I can get without dying. Right? And so the whole thing with the laws, the commandments, they take the interaction of an individual. You've got to do something. Not just hear the law, you've got to obey the law, do the law, follow the law. Now, as, reverse, as re regards God's law, there's two different ways, two different methods that can be dealt with. If we are the one who attempts to follow and enforce the law in our life, God's, with God's law, right? if we're the one who attempts to follow and enforce the law, we call that what? Works. Works. And it ends up in what? Frustration. Failure. Romans chapter 7. <laughs> right? However, if we realize, according to verse, actually verse 2, right up here in Romans 8, if we realize that God has placed within us a helper, and we will talk more about him in the coming lessons, placed within us a helper called the Holy Spirit, that will lead to peace. If we realize that God has placed the Holy Spirit in us, that leads to peace and success. Because someone is helping us. And we realize not only peace, success, but also we build a testimony before God. We could call that sanctification. That is chapter 8. So, let's talk about this process that he brings out in verses 3 and 4. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now, if you took out that phrase, weakened by the flesh, it would still be true, but you wouldn't know why. It's still a truth. God has done what the law could not do. That's a basic statement. Is that right? It's true. But you don't know why it's true. Because you're not understanding the reality. And that's where a lot of believers probably are. They don't know why it is that the law doesn't work. The law is righteous, holy, and good. We read that, chapter 7. That's what it says. The law is righteous, it's holy, and it's good. God's law is perfect. The problem is we're not. And you are the weakest link. All right? We are the ones who bring the failure. It's not that the law was wrong. It's not that the law, that God wrote a law that we couldn't follow. He wrote a law that we wouldn't follow. 
because we're not able to fully commit ourselves to those things. Oh, yeah, for a time, I know for a time, maybe you, you never murdered anybody. That's, that's great. That's wonderful. But it didn't get you saved. Right? Because not murdering somebody doesn't make you saved. It might keep you out of jail, but uh, it's, it's just that we, we can do certain things for a time, but you can't change who you are. And nothing about the law can change your character. It cannot change who you are inwardly. And so God has done for us what the law could not do. So God has done for us these things. The first word in the, in the verse is for. I know, you're going to talk about the word for. Yeah, I am. For. For God has done. This little word for indicates that verses 3 and 4 explain verse 2. All right, so what he said in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Verses 3 and 4 explain it. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. There's no condemnation because, why? I'm not in condemnation, why? Because I'm not in bondage to the law. I, there's nothing to condemn me by. Jesus doesn't condemn. The Spirit doesn't condemn. God doesn't condemn. Oh, we may have some friends that will condemn us, but, but the Word doesn't condemn us. So we're not under conduct because I'm not under bondage to the law. And so that is what has been severed. It's God who made the change. I didn't make the change. I didn't decide to say, well, let's set the law apart. I can't do it, so God, let's just set this apart. Let's set aside speed limits. No, number one, it's not going to happen because they need, they need um, money for their bank accounts anyway um, but the truth is I didn't do anything about it God did and he did it because he knew I needed it done he didn't do it for me just because he liked me though I know he likes me I, he probably likes you too but God did it for us because he knew we needed it and because it was what his desire could not be accomplished without it. It was never going to be accomplished. Before Adam sinned, the lamb was slain. God already knew. It had already been established. I'm going to create a man. I'm going to make him perfect. I'm going to put him in a garden. I'm going to give him one thing to do. But I know he's going to fail, so I'm already going to make a plan to redeem him that by his choice, he will come to me. And so God established a way to redeem man. The lamb was slain. So this is God's desire to change. And so for what the law could not do, God has done. Now the interesting thing about this, this verse, uh, really, is that the word has done, is, which to us is a verb, does really not appear in the verse. And so the, the literal reading of the verse, you can read that highlighted in yellow there, is what was impossible for the law to do, 
weakened by the flesh, God. The word has done is not even there. It's implied. But I just, I just like the way that the phrase ends with God. What was impossible for the law. So we say what the law could not do. No, it's not just could not. The Greek word is impossible. What was impossible for the law to do? There wasn't even the possibility. There wasn't the potential that the law could do it. Well, then why did God give it? So that we would know what he was going to do. So that we would know what God was redeeming us from. And so what was impossible for the law, weakened by our flesh, we'll come to that phrase in a minute, God. Sending his son in the form of sinful flesh. Condemned sin in the flesh. That's the way it reads. And the verb has done is not really there. It's implied. It, the idea is there. But the statement is, is powerful. God sending his son. That's the answer. God sending his son. What is the great message of the gospel? God sending his son. What is the message all about that we share with the world? God sending his son. What are we getting ready to celebrate? We celebrate the Christmas season. We're celebrating God doing what? Sending his son. What's God going to do at the end of time? He's going to send his son. God is sending his son. So the, everything is wrapped up in the person of the Christ. Yeah, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God sending his son. What was impossible for the law? God sending his son. Not sending more law. Not rescinding the law. God didn't go back and say, you know what? I, I made a mistake. Let's, let's take some of these laws out. All right, let me take some more of them out. All right, you're still not doing very well. So let me, let me take a whole bunch of these out. Okay, we'll take all the odd-numbered laws out. <laughs> oh, you take that, you still got what? You got more odd numbers because then everything moves up, right? Come on, you're all mathematic. So it's, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just leave one law. Do not eat what's on that tree. And what? There we went. Failure. Can't even do one. So it is. So God didn't rescind the law. He sent his son. If there's nothing else I want you to remember from this session tonight, is that God sent his son. God sending his son. That's the answer to all of this frustration. God sending his son. And once I have opened my heart to receive his son, then I begin to realize what else God wants for me. And that is, when I receive his son, I also receive what? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit begins to live on the inside of me. And the Holy Spirit begins to work with me. And said, Jeff, it's not by the law, it's by God sending his son. Draw from his grace. Draw from what he has done. God sending 
his son. And why was this important? Because the law was weakened by the flesh. You say, well, no, the law is good, righteous, and holy. How could my flesh weaken it? It weakens it because my flesh can't do it. You know how good it is? I can't do it. You know how righteous the law is? I can't do it. My flesh is weakened. The word weakened can also be thought of as the word sickly. It has to do with sickliness. All right? So it's, it loses its vitality. It loses its strength. The law loses its potency because of the weakness of the flesh. And so what was potent as it came out of God's mouth becomes impotent when it comes into our life. Why? Because our flesh weakens it. You say, well, isn't that just before we were born again? No, because you still got flesh today. It's just, it's not, it's not supposed to. Can I hear a good amen there? It's not supposed to be ruling you. Right? The law, the flesh is still there. It's just, it's not supposed to rule you. Now, I'm not going to ask you for names, but we all know that not everyone is, is yielding to that. Because right? the flesh does rule some people. Some people, you know, that still have problems with the flesh. Some some people do. And you can come up and look at my pink paper later. All right. But the the uh, the law was weakened by the flesh. It just it just is here. And what didn't bother me yesterday suddenly bothers me today. I I wasn't. I wasn't tempted by that yesterday, but now all of a sudden, there it is. And so now I've got this issue, or I've got that issue. And so the flesh is still there. It doesn't have power until I give it power. And then it pulls me away from the purpose, the plan of God. The law is weakened by the flesh. So what did God do? Second part of verse 3. What the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, God has done. How? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So here's how God was going to accomplish that. And he sums this all up in this beautiful passage. God sending his own son. All of the words in this, this second half of this verse are significant. And they're significant in the fact of how they're listed and how they're presented. There are passages of scripture where we can condense things, we can summarize things, but there's really no way to, to condense what's in this verse. Sending his own son. The first thing is it's his, his own son. Didn't just say sending his son. 
It's sending his own son, indicating that this is God's very son. This is the one who's come out from the Father. This is not just someone who says, hey, I'm a son of God. You, you follow, follow Luke's uh, genealogy all the way back to the beginning, and it ends with what? Adam, the son of God. That's what it says. Adam was the son of God. So God's sending his son. Adam? Is that, is that our salvation? Really? No. There's all kinds of sons. But this is God's what? Own son. This is his very son. What God was going to accomplish through Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, could not be accomplished through any other means. It was not another way that it could be done. There was no other person. There was no other individual. There was no other way that this could be accomplished. It was God's own son. And that had to be what God was doing. He was the true and only son of God. But I do enjoy the fact that whereas it says in John 3.16, he's the only begotten. Later on in Colossians, he's called the first begotten. Why? Because I'm one of those two. He was the only begotten. Now he became the first. But God's own son. And so God was going to accomplish this, not by legislation, not by sending somebody to overthrow the law, to rescind the law, to refute the law. But he was going to deal with it himself through his own son. And he sent his own son, what's the next phrase? In the likeness of sinful flesh. All right? Now, there's three things within this that are significant. In the likeness of sinful flesh. All right, the first thing. It does not say in sinful flesh. God sent his own son in sinful flesh. He didn't. Why? Because he was not sinful. All right? He was not like anyone else. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it was not like the others. Jesus was not sinful flesh like all others who have come since Adam. He's not like them. The Bible tells us that he is the last Adam. He's also the second man. And as the last Adam, he's the last of that race that was brought down from Adam. But the thing is, when God sent his son, he was made like Adam. Adam wasn't created with sin. But as we said, remember our little Latin phrase? Adam could sin. Right? He's created with the ability to sin. Deep theology question here. Listen. Was Jesus created with the ability to sin? How do we know? Because the Bible says he was tempted and tried, but was without sin. To be tempted 
he had to be able to sit. Now that is something that is argued in some theological circles, um, that Jesus absolutely could not have sinned. Then the temptations were real. Temptation, he did not sin. It doesn't say he could not sin. It says he did not sin. Neither was any sin found in him. So, though the sin was not his own, he could have, just like Adam could, Jesus could have. Would he have? No. Why? Because he was the obedient son of the father. So, it wasn't because of his deity. It was because he was fully committed to his father. He was not going to. Yet, the temptation was there. Why was he sent into the wilderness to be tested? To see if he would. And so the whole question comes down that he was able to sin, but he did not. Now, it doesn't say, though, that he came in sinful flesh. Sinful flesh meaning that he had the sin nature like we were born with. And we were born, what's the phrase we used for us? Not able to not sin. Right? Not able to not sin. And so that was in us, that fallen nature. Jesus did not have the fallen nature. And so this is how this worked. He had the ability to, just Adam, Adam wasn't created with a fallen nature. Right. It wasn't until he made his choice. So, if Jesus had come in sinful flesh, and this is, this is a theological issue that a lot of people wrestle with, well, Jesus is no different than the rest of us. In fact, recently I was reading uh, an article that said among um, most of the current generation, Gen X, Gen Z, wherever we are, what are we in? Next, but if, yeah. Anyway, among most of the people, twenty years to forty, they believe that Jesus is no different than them. That's what they believe about Jesus, that he is no different than them. That he could sin, he probably did. And there are plenty of preachers who are acknowledging and saying, "Well, he probably did. We just don't have record of it." Well, then you've denied all of the Bible. And you're denying this verse. Because it doesn't say that he came in sinful flesh. What's the next thing? Jesus was not just the likeness of flesh. All right, so there's, there's another little take on it that becomes a heresy in the early church and still held as a heresy today. Jesus was in the likeness of human flesh or in the likeness of flesh. The problem with that is what? If he's in the likeness of flesh, then he's what? Not really flesh. He's, if he's in the likeness of a human, then he's what? Not really human, right? He's a phantom. And that's what they said in the Gnostic doctrines that began to arise at the time of of uh, John, First John, Gnostic doctrines, and continued for 
hundreds of years afterwards, that Jesus was in the likeness of flesh. He didn't really have a body. He just appeared to have a body. In Greek, that's called docet docetism, right? He just seemed to have a body. He wasn't really. He was a phantom. Uh, we would almost call him um, uh, what I, uh, hologram, like a hologram. He was, he was there, but not really there. And so that's how early Gnostic heresy began to arise, and it, it captivated uh, for hundreds of years the church that he wasn't really. But you know what? That, that doctrine started around the time of John, but it's John who answers it. So 1 John chapter 4. Look at verse 2. It's in your notes there. 1 John chapter 4 verse 2 says, By this know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And so this idea of him being in the flesh, I know that a lot of people think, well, you have to confess that he was God. Well, that's important. Was Jesus God? Yes, but that's not the argument here. The argument was, he did he have flesh? Yes. And why is that important? Because if he did not have flesh, he could not have died. If he was just a phantom, if his body just seemed to be there, it appeared, then his body didn't really die. And if he didn't really die, he didn't really go into hell, and he didn't really raise from the dead, and he didn't really ascend to heaven. Because he didn't really come. <laughs> he just appeared to have come. And so this becomes an important um, doctrine that is still being debated again in modern doctrinal issues. Is Jesus really there? Did he really appear? Was he really God? Was he really a man? Yes. So what does it say? It doesn't say he was sinful flesh. It doesn't say he was the likeness of flesh. It does say he was the likeness of sinful flesh all those words are important the likeness of sinful flesh and why is it important that we put that word likeness in because it the greek word homeomati means like in apparent detail in apparent detail jesus was like everyone else in apparent detail he had a mother, he had a father, he was born a baby, he began to grow, he ate, he slept, right? He learned, so he walked from place to place. He was like man in apparent detail, but not in every detail. And what was the difference about him? He had no sin nature. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh he was not sinful flesh he was in the likeness of sinful flesh he was like every human except no sin nature he was unlike every other human because he was also god 
And so he was like in apparent detail. So what does it say? It says, though, so God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. In order for him to be offered for sin, he had to be human. He had to be like us. And so this likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, the Greek phrase for sin, peri harmatias, in the Greek language, this phrase means in regard to a sin offering. So he was in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering. He came as a sin offering. Now, what did they use for sin offerings in the Old Testament? Blood, but they used what? Lambs? Goats? A ram? A turtle dove or pigeon? Right, so they used animals as their substitute, right? So those animals could die, but it wasn't an animal that sinned. It was who? Man that sinned. So I, I sin, I kill a dove. I sin, I'll kill a lamb. I sin, maybe I'll kill a ram. You know, maybe I'll really go all out and kill a bullock. You know, something like that, you know, just really to show myself. Uh, but still, I'm not dying. So my sin offering is not me. And it's nothing like me. It's an animal. So the sin offering was just a prophecy. If I could say it that way. It was, like, it was a prophecy. The sacrifices were a prophetic symbol, a type of what God was going to do. Someone was going to die, and it wasn't going to be a lamb or a goat or a turtle dove or a pigeon. It was going to be a man, someone like me, who could be my sin offering. Someone who would die so I didn't have to. And I'm all, all in for that, right? Someone who dies so I don't have to. But it needs to be like me in order for this to be real. And so God made him in the likeness of sinful flesh and for a sin offering. Or as, as regard to, so that he could be presented as a sin offering. Isaiah 53.10 says, And when you make his soul an offering for sin. The Hebrew phrase there, translated into Greek, is the same Greek words, periharmartios, a sin offering. When you make his soul a sin offering. And this is Isaiah 53 in regard to the Christ, the Lamb that God is going to offer. So, what did God do? In bringing forth his Son, sending his Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as a sin offering, what did he do? He condemned sin in the flesh. Condemned sin in the flesh. Because, I want you to catch this, because his flesh represented us, because he was our sin offering, the condemnation that was to fall upon me falls upon him. So God condemned sin, not in an animal, 
not in grain or some wishful thinking, not in a philosophy. God condemned sin in the flesh of someone who was like me, but without sin. And so this is the beauty of what God has done for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin. The one who knew no sin he made to be sin, or as it says ESV, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that's why he could be a substitute. If it was his sin, he couldn't die for me. He'd be dying for his own sin. But he died for mine. And in doing that, God condemned sin in the flesh. Not in my flesh, in the flesh of his son. And so sin found its perfect sacrifice. The law found its perfect sacrifice. And the, the true substitute was put to death for us so that we could be set free. And that is the essence of Jesus' cry from the cross it is finished. The law has found its perfect sacrifice. It is over. It's done. Which Paul is going to bring up in chapter 10 and verse 4. Christ is the end of the law. Using the same word that Jesus used on the cross. Christ is the end of the law. It is finished. Christ has finished it. Why? Because this was the perfect sacrifice that was made for us. And so sin was condemned in the flesh. In my flesh? No. But because it was condemned in his, then God opened a way for me to live. He removed the law and sent forth his spirit to live within me so that now I can live. And that's what he says in verse 4. In order that he did that, Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteous requirement of the law. Do I have to live the law now? No. But the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in me. I am able to live by the righteous requirements of the law without living by the law under the condemnation of the law, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, that is, put yourself under the law. Don't see in there walk according to the flesh as walk according to sin. It's walk in regard to your flesh or in regard to the Spirit. We walk in regard to what God has revealed to us by His Spirit. I don't live under the law, therefore, I do not walk according to the flesh. I live in the Spirit, I walk according to the Spirit. And so, this is the principle by which God wants us to be able to live. And this forms the foundation for what he's going to get into, and in starting in, in verse 5, as we move into our next section. 
So what God said through Jeremiah, there's the verse. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, I will put my law within them and write it upon their heart. Basically the same thing he said in the book of Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God was going to put the law inside. And who helps us follow that? The Spirit. It is by the Spirit. So I'm not walking according to the outer man, the flesh, submitting myself to the law. I'm walking by the Spirit from the inside. And it is by the Spirit then that I am able to fulfill what God has done. Notice that it says that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, not for us. God wants these fulfilled in us, in our own lives, not for us. It's not that Jesus lives the perfect life, therefore I'm perfect. No. Jesus lives that life. He leaves me an example. I follow his example by the help of the Holy Spirit, and I live that life. I don't live it vicariously through Christ. I live it actually in my life. I walk in the Spirit. His word is fulfilled in us, not just for us. And thank God that the work has been done for us, but it's been done for us so that we can live it in our life. And this is how we then need the help of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is going to present to us, starting in verse 5, how we as the sons of God, with the Spirit of God on the inside, are now brought to this place where we're truly living by the Spirit on the inside, not by the law on the outside. Amen. Amen.